A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, and he got into a boat and he sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he, who, he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but he endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, as we come down to your word, it is our desire um, that you would work in us. Uh, we want to grasp what it is that you are saying. We want to grasp it mentally. Uh, but we also want to internalize it deeply. And Father, uh, what we're really asking for when we come to the scriptures is we're asking for your intervention. Please don't stay far off. When we recognize your presence and we invite and, and we want to give our consent to you doing whatever is necessary in us to make us a people who are, near, who are profoundly fruitful for you, in you, because of you, not because of ourselves. And even as we ask that, we, we don't entirely know what that means, but we know that you do, and so we ask that you would do everything necessary so that we would be the people you want us to be. And so take away every obstacle. We ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Please be seated. And um, it'd be useful and helpful if you would turn back to that long reading, that last reading. Um, we're beginning a series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 13, and we're going to be looking uh, over the next several weeks at a bunch of Jesus' parables. Um, if you're not familiar with the term parable, a, a parable is, um, one way to think of it is this. A, a parable is a deceptively simple story that has the capacity of opening up or unveiling something about God that we couldn't have figured out otherwise. The parable is a little tiny story that kind of draws back a curtain so that you can see something of God, or very often something of yourself, that you couldn't have figured out otherwise. And Jesus is just famous uh, for uh, these little stories, these parables. We're going to be looking at a bunch of them over the next few weeks. Now, let me tell you about a question that has been rolling around in my mind recently. Here's the question. How can I live a fruitful life as a follower of Jesus? And I can frame that for us as a congregation, as a church. How can we, as Emmanuel Church, be a fruitful con uh, congregation as we walk with Jesus? And there's a couple of reasons I'm asking that question. The first is from the story today. Uh, take a look at that gospel reading. Um, the real simple version is this. Jesus tells the story about a farmer who goes out, plants a bunch of seeds. 75% of the seed do not germinate, do not grow, do not produce grain. But 25% of the grain that he throws out uh, does something different. Take, take a look at verse 8. Jesus says 75% uh, of the seed uh, lands on soil that doesn't produce fruit, but 25% lands on good soil, and they produce just an enormous harvest. Do you see that? Um, some of the seed produces 30 times what was planted, some 60 times, some, some 100 times what is planted. Now, for Jesus' original hearers, that was a real gasp moment. It was like, <gasps> that's an enormous amount of increase. Uh, for us, it's not much of a gasp moment because we're not Iron Age farmers. But if, if you imagine like investing 100 bucks and getting back 10,000 or something like that, or investing 10,000 and getting back a million or something like that, that, that would be an amazing return on investment, right? And Jesus here is describing, in a provocative way, just outlandish fruitfulness. And as I read that, I find myself going, ooh, how do I get that? I want to get that. Here's another reason I'm asking that question, how can I be fruitful? And this is a personal reason. Uh, halfway through last week, uh, I lost a dear friend. Uh, Don Lewis uh, was a professor of mine in Canada, and uh, he tragically and unexpectedly died. And over the last week and a half, I've been reflecting on his life a little bit. Uh, and as I reflect on Don's life, um, I, I know you could describe my, my old professor's life, we, I could describe it as he lived a successful life. He was a, you know, I think he graduated from Oxford, uh, he was a professor for 40 years, he wrote books, stuff like that. But I guarantee you, when all the eulogies come out, nobody's going to describe his life as a successful life. Not because it wasn't, but because that's too cheap a word for his life. Don Lewis, my professor, was a fruitful man, fruitful for Jesus. What I mean by that 
is that Don internalized the message of Jesus. In our reading in verse 18, it's called the word of the kingdom. Don internalized the word of the kingdom so deeply that the closer you got to Don Lewis, the more you found yourself right up against Jesus. Uh, Don used to take me out to lunch all the time, uh, which was nice. He paid. And, uh, and then after lunch, we talk about life. He'd take me back to his office, and he never let me get out of his office without praying for me. And Don Lewis was a great academic, but he didn't, when he prayed, he didn't pray polite prayers. He didn't pray platitudes. He prayed to a God whom he knew was an interventionist God. And as, God, as Don asked God to intervene in my life, in those moments, God did intervene in my life. And in the midst of those prayers, I would find myself right up against Jesus. And very often, I would find my sin exposed. Sometimes we call Don the father confessor of this little seminary. But when I found my sin exposed, I'd also see Jesus' grace displayed, and I would walk out of Don's office wanting to surrender my life more fully to Jesus Christ. I was fruit as I came out of Don's office those times. And I was one of hundreds. Sometimes we, Don's guys, get on Zoom these last few years. And we're spread out all over the world. And Don Lewis used to travel the world in the summers, not just to research so he could write books, but he would check up on all his guys. Now, my point is not to eulogize my friend. My point is to say this. A fruitful life, fruitful for Jesus, is a beautiful thing. Crave it. And if that's true, then this is also true. An unfruitful life is a terrible thing. Fear it. And that's why I'm asking, how can I live, how can we live a fruitful life for Jesus Christ? So I'm going to, make, I'm going to ask a more specific question, two specific questions. First of all, in this story, what is it that kills fruitfulness? What are the obstacles to fruitfulness in Jesus' story? Number one. Number two... Uh, what is it that fosters fruitfulness? What explains that 25%? All right, first of all, what is it that kills fruitfulness? Go to the reading now. Uh, picture the scene. Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he's in a boat about 30 feet away from shore, and there's this place, you can go there, there's a place uh, on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee that, where the shoreline curves around and it slopes upward, so it makes a, an amphitheater, so you, if you're sitting in a boat, you, everybody can hear you. And he tells this story about this farmer, as I said, who plants seeds. 75% of it does not produce fruit, but 25% does. He tells this story, and the disciples are confused. They ask him about it, and in verse 18, Jesus starts to explain it. Look at it. Verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This was what was sown along the path. And in the story, the seed along the path, the birds swoop in and, and pick up the seed and take it away. But keep your eyes there on verse 19. This is the first way that fruitfulness gets killed, undermined. Do you see in verse 19, there's a relationship between understanding and the heart. There's a failure to understand and the seed gets stolen from our hearts. Now, 
there's something bigger going on here than just, um, Jesus, I didn't really grasp what it is you're trying to say. There's something deeper going on here and something more dangerous, and it's something rooted in the heart. Jesus is talking about a heart that has a kind of default setting to be a little bit suspicious of God or to be a little bit resistant from God and to be uh, willing for the word of God to be snatched away from us. Now, why do I say that? Well, take a look at Jesus' quote in verse 14. Jesus quotes Isaiah, uh, which was a prophet hundreds of years before Jesus. Uh, the, our first reading was, was directly from Isaiah. And in this quote from Isaiah 6, uh, Isaiah is hearing God diagnose what was going wrong in Israel's heart hundreds of years before Jesus. And God's diagnosis is that Israel's heart has grown dull. Uh, resistant to God, unresponsive to God. And because Israel's heart has grown, grown dull, unresponsive, and resistant to God, they're able to hear physically a lot about God, but never really allow it to get down deep within them. They never quite understand deeply from the heart, and therefore their fruitfulness dies. Now, Isaiah uh, is diagnosing this, but this diagnosis is not unique to Isaiah at all. If you look at the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, you see the same story play out time and again. Uh, do you remember the story of the Exodus? Uh, in the story of the Exodus, Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and God's kingdom intervenes in their slavery. Uh, God's kingdom breaks in, and when God's kingdom comes, God judges evil and he rescues his people. That's always what God's kingdom is doing. And so God intervenes, rescues Israel from their enslavement, judges is, uh, Egypt's injustice and evil, and Israel has a front seat to all of this. They're seeing all of this unfold right before them. Israel becomes the beneficiary of God's kingdom, breaking in, liberating them, doing all kinds of wonderful things. And yet, despite that, Moses, at the end of his life, in the book of Deuteronomy, looks at Israel and he says, Israel, you hear, but you don't understand. Your heart is not disposed to trusting the Lord. And what had happened here is that uh, despite everything that Israel had seen, Israel's heart defaulted to resisting God's authority, to resisting God's kingdom, to resisting God's message, and that theme runs out through the whole of the Bible. And Jesus, as he is saying these parables, he's watching it unfold. So earlier in this day, in chapter uh, 12 of Matthew, uh, Jesus gets rejected out of hand by the religious authorities. And he gets probably rejected by his family. And right after this chapter, Jesus gets rejected by his hometown. Now, here's what I'm trying to show. The primary obstacle to a fruitful life is a problem that is resident in our own hearts. Now, I don't know if you feel resistant to God. Maybe you know. That's fine. But nevertheless, we don't have to feel resistant to God for it nevertheless to be true in a deep way. Most of us have times, all of us, don't we? 
We hear the message of God's kingdom. We hear that God is intervening through Jesus Christ. He's intervening to set this broken world right. He's going to intervene by throwing down injustice and evil and judging it. And he's going to rescue his enemies and turn them into the children of God. And we hear that message. And yet there's part of it that a part of us that just says, I'm not sure that that's true. I'm not sure that that makes sense. And I'm not even entirely sure that I want it to be true. And I can hear somebody say, no, that, that, I don't do that. Okay, I hope that's true. But consider, what does your heart do when you suffer? Look at verse 20. As for what is sown on the rocky soil, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That's good. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation, that is suffering from our circumstance of life, or persecution arises on account of the word, that's suffering because you're trying to follow Jesus. When that happens, immediately he falls away. Um, years ago, I was, I was speaking with a woman um, about following Jesus. She'd, she'd been investigating Jesus for a while. Uh, she'd been coming to church and stuff like that. And, uh, but she was, she was going through a lot of pain. And one day, she asked me just point blank. She said, Jim, listen, just be straight with me. Um, if I follow Jesus, uh, are my kids going to be okay? Are my finances going to be okay? Is everything going to be okay? Is it going to get better? And I said, well, when you follow Jesus, um, no, I can't give you any guarantees that your life will necessarily get better on those measurements. The Lord will give you... Uh, grace and mercy and blessing that lasts for eternity but it could even get worse in the short term and she looked at me and she goes well then what's the point and that was one of the last times we talked and of course you can feel the force of that argument that question can't you i can and emmanuel i don't want to ever uh, uh peddle jesus to you I don't, I want to be as honest as I can. Following Jesus is not a vaccine against suffering, okay? No one gets to evade the pain. We will all end up on the casualty list. Of course, that's true if you follow Jesus or if you don't. But when life kicks you in the teeth, all of us are going to have something deep within us that says, see, I knew that God couldn't be trusted, and I gave it a go. I gave it a go. And look at where it got me. I started following Jesus, and then the wheels came off. And maybe the wheels came off inside the church for you. Maybe you look at the church and you say, I thought the kingdom of God was supposed to be coming, but now I look at the church and I look at Christians around me and they are jerks and they are abusive and they are evil. This is not working. I'm out. And you can feel the force of that argument. And then there's other times where it's going to be, I thought God was intervening to set this world right, but if you look at my life, that plan has clearly failed. I gave it a go, and I'm out. I'm out. See, our hearts will find good reason 
in the midst of suffering to conclude that God has failed and that God has no power and that God is not there, at least not for me. Can you hear that echo in your own heart someplace? And then let's keep going. Verse 22. As for the, what was sown on thorns, among thorns, that's the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world, okay, anxiety, fear, say fear. fear. Let's try that again. Say fear. fear. And the deceitfulness of riches, say greed, greed. ambition. <laughs> All that chokes the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, this is interesting because these are things that very often we will get uh, encouraged in and rewarded for in this life. So I, I want you to imagine somebody who's about 10 years into their career. They're like 33. And, they, and, and this is the kind of person that is, that is like forward tuck in life. Yeah? And, and, and you come to this person, 33 years old, here working in the city, and, and you say, hey, how, how, how are you and Jesus doing? And, and the person responds, oh, Jesus Totally. Man, Jesus is great. Um, he really helped me get going. Um, and man, can I, can I tell you about how these last 10 years, let me tell you what I've done. And, and all of a sudden you, you kind of get the person's resume, right? This is what everything, this is how everything is going. And then the person starts to talk to you about where he is going in the future and, and the ambition and all of that. And you, you look at it, and it's really compelling. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But nevertheless, as you, as you listen to them, you, you get this sense that in some subtle ways, Jesus is being eclipsed, or there's a competitive, the thing that's really forcing this person's heart forward is the career, is the ambition, is the what's next in my accomplishments. And friends, we live in a city where if that is your posture, you are going to be rewarded. And it's subtle because in one sense, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Fast forward 10 years. Talk to this person again in his 40s. And you meet him on his uh, Upper West Side apartment. He owns it. He also owns something in Brooklyn Heights. Got a backyard. And you ask the same question. And, he, and he's like, Jesus, yes. He glances at his watch uh, to check the stock market. And he says, oh man, you know what, I totally, it's, I wish I had the time, you know, I, but I've got to make my numbers. I've got to make my numbers. And he starts to talk clip with clipped, with a little fidgety. I've I, I got to meet my numbers, man. And, and then and his eyes are just a little bit bloodshot. And he, and, and he says, and my kids, man, they're kicking off. And they've got, they've got a lot of things. I've got to give them the stuff, and I've got to take care of them, and I've got to make sure that they get in that right school. And there's a lot moving. There's a lot going on. And if the stock market does the wrong thing, then I don't know how I'm going to get them into college. Um, and I need a drink. And then you fast forward 10, ten years, and this time he's in his 50s, and you ask him the same question. And... And yeah, Jesus, man, that's it, part of my retirement plan. <laughs> um, in about 10 years, the plan is I'm gonna, I'm gonna winter in Florida and it's gonna be great because there's gonna be golf. And, but you don't hear much about Jesus. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to uh, illustrate someone who is in one sense doing nothing wrong, but there are just subtle ways in which anxiety and ambition is eclipsing Jesus and is becoming the animating motivation of a person's life. You can be successful and fruitless for Jesus. 
and you can be successful in things that are not intrinsically problematic. So what is it that kills fruitfulness? Well, there's something in our hearts that wants to resist God, and that resistance leverages our fears and our suffering and our ambitions and our desires and leverages all of that to give reasons to push God to the margin. Rarely denying God, but marginalizing God. What then cultivates fruitfulness? Look at verse 23. As for what is sown on good soil, it's the one who hears the word and understands it, and he indeed bear fruit, and, and 30, 60, 100. Now, to grasp this, I want you to think about Jesus. Um, Jesus is the most fruitful man who has ever lived. And he was fruitful because the word of his father was always going deep. Uh, the word of God, the message of God and God's kingdom and God's authority was always going down deep in Jesus. It was always going down into his deepest soul. And you can catch that when you look at, look at how Jesus was tempted. Do you remember? There's a story where Jesus uh, is tempted by the devil. The devil was trying to snatch away the word from Jesus' heart. And the devil takes Jesus up on a high point in the, and, and he, he lets him see all the kingdoms of the world. I don't know if you remember this. But Jesus, in a vision, so to speak, sees all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil says, hey, I can arrange you to be the ruler of all of this. I can make you the next Caesar. I can make you the next Warren Buffett. I can make you the next Elon Musk and so much better. And you better believe it was enticing because he could gain the kingdoms without suffering. But the word of God was working deeply in Jesus. And Jesus knew that success in this world is fleeting. And he also knew that fruitfulness for his father is fruit that never ends. And therefore, Jesus turned down that path to success because he had a bigger ambition. He wanted to live entirely for his father and for the kingdom and for the treasure that never grows old. And not only that, he was not afraid to look like a failure in this life. And friends, that is a sign that the word is bearing fruit in your life. When your ambitions begin to shift from primarily achievement and money for this world and shifts so that your ambition is ultimately to, to, to accumulate eternal wealth and eternal fruit, and at the same time, when you take your fears and your anxieties and you're beginning to surrender them to Jesus Christ, maybe with tears, maybe struggling to know how to do it, Jesus, I want to trust you. I can't trust you, but I want to trust you. When those prayers are prayed, then that's a sign that the fruit is growing and the word is growing deep. But you can see it in Jesus' temptation, but you can see it even more clearly in Jesus' suffering. Did you know that the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 8, says that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered? Now that is a, that's a remarkable verse, because we know that Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus never sinned, but nevertheless, it apparently, as Jesus suffered, uh, God was using his suffering to work the word ever more deeply within him. And that Jesus was, in a remarkable way, in his human nature, growing and learning and becoming more capable of bearing fruit as he suffered. And Jesus says at one point that his suffering was not just at the cross, but was over the course of his entire life, was a type of temptation. Now, Emmanuel, can you see what that means for us? If Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered, then that's going to be true for us, too. And this is crucial. Some of the greatest fruit that you will ever bear for Jesus Christ will come not... not not in spite of the pain, but in the midst of the pain, through the pain, through the suffering that you endure. Those are moments, if the word goes deep, where your fruit can, bring, can, can bear and come forth. 
The best gift you will ever give people is to be able to say, Jesus Christ was faithful in the midst of my suffering. And as we walk through those difficult times, God is intervening, the kingdom is breaking in, and God is shaping and molding and crafting you into somebody who reflects the beauty of Jesus Christ more clearly. So trust Jesus in the midst of your pain, and I promise you that none of your sacrifice will be wasted. Jesus' sacrifice wasn't wasted. Jesus' greatest suffering was his most fruitful moment when he hung upon the cross for you and for your redemption. And that leads us to where we've got to land. How can we be a fruitful people? And the answer is that the word has to go deep within our hearts. It has to go deep into those moments where it's tempting for the word to be snuffed out. The word has to go deep into our fears and our anxieties. So take your fears and your anxieties and say, Father, target my fears and my anxieties with the word of your kingdom and who Jesus is and what he has done. And the word of God and the kingdom of God has to go deep within our pain. Lord, here, are, here is my teeth-grinding pain. Where is your faithfulness in the midst of this? Show me and apply your word here. And through all of that, God is going to be working, softening our hearts, changing them so that we're able to see and understand, hear and internalize and turn and find healing. Well, let me sum it up differently. Look at verse 16. Do you remember the heart problem? Our hearts resist God, and we fail to grasp God's word. But Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, verse 16, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Blessed are your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, didn't see it. Long to hear what you hear, didn't hear it. Okay, stop. My question is this, what is it that the disciples could see in that moment that the, that the prophets of the past couldn't see? And the answer is, they could see Jesus. He was right there in front of them. And that's the bottom line of how we become fruitful. You've got to look at Jesus. You've got to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And the Gospel of John tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that's Jesus. And so the word of God is not just a set of ideas and doctrines to grasp. It is a person to know. And right now, he is looking at you. He is standing in front of you, so to speak. And he's saying, can you see me? And can you trust me? And can you trust me in your fears? And can you trust me in your questions? And can you trust me that the wealth that I give you is better than any wealth you could accumulate in this world? Can you trust me? Can you see me hanging upon the cross? Because that is the proof that I love you. Jesus wants to know if you can see him. And when you entrust yourself to him, not just for the first time, but each day, as you trust yourself to him through each phase of your life, Jesus will take your life in all its complexity, in all its uncertainty, in all its question, and in all its pain, and, in, and he will take it, and he will turn you into a fruitful soil. And he will give you a fruit that will never die. And he will bring forth more fruit in your life than can fit in one life. And it will spill over into the lives of others, your children, your coworkers, your industry, your church. And it will spill over into the next generation so that in a hundred years, people whom, who will never know your name will nevertheless know something of Jesus because of the life that you lived for him now. 
Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.